today as we continue in our series on the selected parables through the Gospel of Luke, we are looking at what is likely the most popular parable, the Good Samaritan. Now, the reason that I say it's, it's likely the most popular is because it's the most well-known outside of the church, outside of Christendom. The theme has inspired movies and poetry, and every so often you will hear or read of a news story of someone who is helping a stranger. And they'll often call that person a good Samaritan. Here's a story of a good Samaritan. Now, is that what this is all about? Is the story of the good Samaritan all about being nice to strangers? Yes. And that's our sermon for today. Thank you for coming. Uh, we'll see you next Sunday. No, there, there's so much more that's happening in this passage, and I hope that we together, as we work through this passage, will be able to see that. Now, what we'll see is, like many of the parables, they are sparked by a question in a conversation. And as we've seen, Jesus doesn't always answer the question that's asked. He, he, he will answer it, but he also goes deeper. Right? There's often an underlying question or underlying fear or maybe a motive that's hidden for the question. So because of that, we won't have, as we often do in our sermons, one main point. Uh, what we'll do is we'll follow along in the story. This is a narrative. It's a dialogue between characters and a story's told. So we'll follow along in the story and we'll ask ourselves three questions. Uh, these questions will help us not only to understand, I hope, the parable, uh, but also will help us to see a driving theme of Jesus' ministry. And so I begin by asking, isn't that why you're here? Isn't that what we all need this morning, to, to see Jesus? Aren't you here to meet with God? And so let's pray as we prepare to hear from God through his word. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you again for the gift of the church and for the opportunity to gather together Lord, I pray, uh, mindful of our situation this morning with electricity issues and a louder generator, and Lord, we have enough distractions in our life. We pray that there would be no added things that happen this morning with the sound, with the, whatever the thing might be. Father God, help us to see Jesus. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice this morning, that you would be glorified, that we would grow in the likeness of your Son. For your glory and for our good. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Now look with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. Uh, we'll begin by considering the context of the parable. So verses 25 through 29. You can follow along in your Bible, in the bulletin, or on the screens. Luke 10, verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus. And who is my neighbor? So th there are a few things for us to note. First of all, uh, this expert in the law isn't a lawyer, as we would first think. This is a Pharisee. 
Right? He, he was a religious man who was an expert in God's law. Right? He was a professional theologian, if you will. And, and there were two questions that this expert asks. First, it sets the theme. Right? He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then the second question is, who is my neighbor? Right? You saw that in the text. Those are the two questions that this Pharisee asks. And so it zooms in a bit on neighbors, but this is a conversation, firstly, about eternal life. And so we need to put the neighbor question and even the parable under the umbrella of this theme of eternal life. I also think it's good for us to see that Jesus points the Pharisee back to God's word. Did you notice that? Jesus asks him, well, what, what's written in, in the law? Referring to the Old Testament, referring to the commands, and the, the Ten Commandments. Friends, God's word holds the words of life. And I think it's too often that we neglect the Bible. We're, we're looking for answers always in all parts of our life, all the experiences we go through. We are a people who want to hear from God. And yet we don't believe that he speaks through his word. We're looking for all these different, unique things, different ways. But I pray that we would be a people who grow in our love for the Bible. And that we would seek God the way that he is most clearly revealed himself to us through his word. Look with me again to verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's important for us to keep this underlying motive in mind, right? He wanted to justify himself. Remember with me, he, he's an expert in the law, which means he is a keeper of the law. He cares about the law and he wants to obey the law, but it's clear that he wants to know what is the basic amount of obedience that's required to get credit. Now, if you're a university student or in high school or in education, it's that time of the year or it's finals, it's exams, right? Some of you are even in the middle of studying now. You teachers are preparing for all the end of the year grading you have to do, and you're probably preparing yourselves as well for students to bring their, oh, their sad stories of why they just couldn't turn in the assignment in, in time or asking for that higher grade, right? So it's the end of the year. Some of you are at the top of your class, and that's wonderful. I'm not talking to you right now. Others know exactly the grade you need to get to the 10th percent in order to pass your class. You know what you need to get on the final, and that, that's okay. I hope that you study well and that you will get that grade. I have had a class or two like that, but this is the mindset of the Pharisee. He is a letter of the law kind of person, not a spirit of the law. He just wants to know, what is the minimum I have to do? And we see that he answered the question correctly, didn't he? And that he wants a way out. So that's the context, but I, I do want to spend time thinking about uh, neighbors a bit before we jump into the parable. This is going to help us in our first question. Remember, there's going to be three questions that we will use to understand this passage. Now, what comes to mind when you think of a neighbor? Well, when I think of a neighbor, I usually think of someone who's living close to me, either the house next door or someone in the same building other flats in our building. And then from that kind of closeness, we can expand a bit, right? We can think of a neighborhood which covers 
people who live around the same area as you, right? The same streets, maybe a certain walking distance is what you have in mind. But, but who are these people who are your neighbors? The thought at this time, or at that time, excuse me, and even now, really, in many ways, is that my neighbor is a brother to me and I to him. Now, often, especially, again, in that time, your neighbors were your family. Right? That's who you lived closest to. You had property or home, and then you just built around it, and so it just was close family towards extended family. And so, as we consider and think about neighbors, we can say that neighbors are close to you in proximity, right? In space and in distance, right? But also, they're close to you in that they're like you. They're similar. Let me give you a few examples. When I mention Burj Hamoud, are there a group or type of people that come to mind? You don't have to answer, just think about that. What about Ashrafiyya? What about Uzai? Or Saifi village? Are you thinking of a, of a kind of person? Right? Neighbors often share the same ethnicity. They share the same religion or economic status. We can think of rich neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods. So that's the mindset that we have when we think of neighbors and neighborhoods. So the neighbors, as the Pharisee is trying to ensure, right, who is my neighbor, are people like himself. So when you think of the command, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not so hard to love your neighbor when your neighbor is like you. Because usually you like yourself. or like what you're trying to be, and you want people who are like you to be near you. And so we want to keep that in mind as we go to the parable. Uh, and, and here, uh, as we read the, the parable, we'll consider the first of our three questions. Who is our neighbor? So if you're taking notes, three main questions that's going to uh, work through this passage and through the sermon. The first question, who is our neighbor? And let's keep reading verses 30 through 37. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus said, sorry, then Jesus told him, go and do the same. It's a simple story. I, I, I trust many of you have heard it before. Uh, a Jewish person is attacked and is robbed and is in great need. Two religious Jews walk by and they offer no help. And a Samaritan stops and helps. Now we'll consider more deeply why a Samaritan, but simply to point out, He's not like the priest or the Levite. He's a different ethnicity. He's a different race. 
right? He is not a Jew. And Samaritans were hated in the eyes of the Jews. Now, the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been known. And this is common in the way that Jesus spoke. He's speaking in a way that would relate to the people who are listening to him. It's, it's as if I told you I, I drove down from Beirut to Saida. You, you know the road I took. There's not many ways to get from Beirut to Saida. You have a picture if you've driven there. You have an idea of the, the sea on the right side and then the hillside on the left. And you know the road, don't you? Or if I told you that last night I was bored and I went, went for a walk around uh, Dahye last night. Right away you have a picture in your mind if you're familiar with the neighborhoods in Lebanon. You're wondering, maybe you're even afraid for the pastor. What are you doing there? It's dangerous. You have to be careful. right? So neighborhoods, streets, roads, we're, we're familiar with them. That's what's happening here. The first hearers were familiar of this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the road in our parable wasn't the best road. It was long. It was windy. It was very dangerous. Uh, and not just dangerous because of the road itself, but because people were often robbed and beaten there. For centuries, this road was referred to as the Red or the Bloody Way. And so this is, again, a road that's known to be dangerous. And so, yes, the parable that Jesus told is fictional, but it's based in reality. This kind of thing that happened to the man has happened before and happened for many centuries, even after this time. So the story wasn't only relatable to the Pharisee, right, the person, the expert in the law that Jesus is speaking to, not only relatable to those who first heard it, but it was also shocking. The Jews hated the Samaritans because Samaritans were a kind of mixed race. They were an impure, half-Jewish nation who practiced a half-pagan religion. Right? That doesn't mean much to us, we, we can't really grasp the shock, but it's, it, it's an important part of the story. It's an important part of this lesson. Try to imagine a story that's told to African slaves. And the hero of the story was a slave driver. Try to connect that weight. Or try to or think about a story that's told to Palestinians and highlighting the good works of an Israeli soldier. This, that's what's happening here. There, there's shock. What about telling a story to a group of Armenians and encouraging them to follow the example of a Turk because he's the champion of the lesson? Right? I don't know about you. Even as I was preparing this, I had a few more examples, but I felt uncomfortable thinking of the scenario let alone actually experiencing a, a twist in the story the way that the Pharisee would have heard, but Jesus did. And we'll consider in just a bit why he did that. Now, as a side comment, as I was preparing and thinking about these different groups, friends, do you feel the brokenness of sin? How horrible is it that we live in a world where such wicked things happen, and it leads us to see others who are created in the image of God, created by God as enemies. But we, we know that feeling, don't we? We can think of not only neighborhoods, but people and races and, and countries, and, and we have a negative response to it because of either something we've experienced or something our family has experienced. This was never the way it was supposed to be. So we see brokenness even in this parable. Now back to our question who is our neighbor? 
the Pharisee answered rightly. I trust he was reluctant. He didn't really want to highlight his enemy as the hero, but he was right, right? The one who showed mercy was the one who proved to be a neighbor. Now, for, for us, as we apply the teaching of this parable, as we think, is who, who is our neighbor? We can answer that our neighbor is anyone that we come across. This was a, a road. This was a place of travel. No one lived in these areas, and yet you can be a neighbor to someone in a place that's not your home, to a person that is even different than you, right? All the people that we encounter, not only people like us, as we considered, but as we read, even those who are extreme opposite of us, different race, different religion, even enemies. Our second question, what does neighboring look like? So we're considering who is our neighbor. Simple answer is anyone that we come across. Now, what does neighboring look like? Now, specifically, we're going to consider Christian neighboring. That's, that's what's happening here, right? The neighboring in a way that we're called to by God. Not just, okay, make sure to always have an extra egg. That way, in case your neighbor comes, you can offer them egg or a cup of sugar. No, but neighboring in the way that we've considered in the first question, in a way that we're called to by God. Now, for us to do that, we need to look at the Samaritan's actions. We read that he had compassion. That's, that's important. Compassion can be defined as having a deep empathy. It's, it's a suffering along with the person that you're looking at. And so if you were with us a couple weeks ago, think with me to the parable uh, that, that we considered. The, the sinning woman, the sinner woman who wept at the feet of Jesus and who, who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and with the expensive perfume. Do you remember the question that Jesus asked the Pharisee? He asked, do you see this woman? Now, we consider that, of course he saw her. He, he knew who she was. He knew that she was a sinner. He knew the things that she was doing, but he didn't see her. Right? He, he didn't look beneath. He didn't consider the real person. He didn't see someone who was forgiven. And as a response of this forgiveness is showing a great love. Now, in contrast, this Samaritan had a real seeing. He saw someone on the side of the road who bore the image of God. He saw himself in that beaten person. And so this compassion, this true seeing is the foundation of these actions that we're going to consider. As I think of the inactions, even of the, of the priest and the, and the Levite, I'd like to think because they're humans, we're humans. We know the feelings and the complications of this world, but I'd like to think that they felt sympathy for the man that was left on the road. I don't know how they couldn't to see someone who's dying, but whatever they might have felt, whatever they may have thought, they weren't led to act. So we see action as an important part of good neighboring. Four things that we can point to quickly. Number one, his neighboring was practical. His neighboring was practical, right? He helped to address a real need. He bandaged his wounds. He brought him to an end. He took care of him. He paid for what he needed. Number two, his neighboring was risky. We consider the dangers of the road, 
right? And so for him to stop and to help a stranger, he was putting himself in danger, right? This man was beaten and robbed. Who's to say that this wasn't a trap? Who's to say that the robbers weren't around just waiting for the next person to beat, to steal from, and to leave half dead? I, I like to imagine that the priest and the Levite had that cross their mind. Oh, I, I want to help, but what if something happens? I have responsibilities and expectations. I have a family at home. I feel bad for this person, but I, I can't risk it. Maybe you felt that before. Maybe there's a situation where a driver needed help pushing a car. And you've helped before, but maybe you were worried it was a trick. We live in a different time. The country feels like it's changing. Different neighborhoods, you might have fears that you haven't had before. And so this was a risky situation. It didn't stop. You don't want to delay. It's, it's not wrong to think that way. It's rational thinking, right? But the Samaritan didn't care about those things as much as he cared for the need of the stranger. And so his neighboring was practical. His neighboring was risky. Number three, his neighboring was sacrificial. Did you notice that all the things he did was, was at his own expense? He gave of his oil, his wine. He put them on his animal. He, he gave of his own money. Right? There was a level of sacrifice in order to be a good neighbor. And number four, his neighboring was generous. Not only did he give of his own wealth and pay for his treatment, he, he paid for any further treatment. Right? He, he gave the innkeeper two days' wages, and he said that he would cover anything else that were to uh, come if he were to accrue any more expenses. Uh, at our home group on Wednesday night, as we looked through this passage in preparation for today, uh, we noted that no one does this much. This is extreme, isn't it? We even modernized the parable and considered that a person today stopping to help a stranger on the side of the road, naked and beaten, right? This good Samaritan would perform first aid. And they would put this bleeding person into their own car. They would drive them to a hospital where they could receive care. They pay cash and leave the tab open, right? guaranteeing the doctors, I will cover whatever expenses. It's on me. No one does that. But who does? Who did? Does this good Samaritan remind us of anyone? This is a picture of Jesus and his care for us. We can say that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. We are the half-dead person on the side of the road Sin has devastated our lives and is leading us toward eternal death. Jesus saw our great need and he had compassion on us. But he didn't just look down from heaven and make a plan to help. He came down himself, didn't he? He came to us to save us. Christ didn't just risk his life. As we read the Gospels, we know that he gave his life so that we wouldn't die, but that we would live right the, the, the sacrificial death of jesus on the cross was a substitutionary death right sacrifice we can understand it as giving something up at a loss to yourself which is true generally and true of the cross but when a sacrifice is presented as an offering 
It's meant as a substitute. Right? We can think of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. When a person deserved punishment for their sins, instead of paying for their sins with their own life, which is what was required, God was gracious to accept the sacrifice in their place. At that time, it was a pigeon or a lamb or some sort of offering. That offering would die so that they don't have to. But humans kept on sinning year after year, generation after generation. And it was clear that those sacrifices weren't enough. As we study the entire picture of the Old Testament and of God's word, we know that they were never meant to be enough. They were pointing forward to an ultimate sacrifice. Christ's death on the cross was enough. He took our place completely and willingly, and the scriptures declare that he paid once and for all, for all of our sins. And it's when we begin to see Jesus as our neighbor, the one who neighbored us well, when we consider what he's done, not only are we given an example of what to do, but because Christ lives in us, we are empowered to be good neighbors to all that we come across. And, and we see in our passage that this is what Jesus expects from us, right? Go and do the same. I, I remember the, the first time I came across uh, the story, um, I was especially moved. There's a story of the Christian response uh, of pandemic during the Roman Empire. You know, in human history, there's been lots of epidemics and pandemics and kind of really sad and broken things. This example comes from the end of the third century. A pandemic was uh, taking the lives of 5,000 people a day during the, the reign of the Roman Empire. And it was noted the difference between how believers responded and how non-believers responded. And the, the, the accounts that I'm referring to are from Dionysius of Alexandria and Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage. So these are records of uh, first-hand accounts. Non-Christians were told throughout the sick, the first sign of sickness, if someone coughed, do you remember that during the early COVID days? We were so worried to cough because we don't want anyone to think that we were, had COVID. And so I was, I was so worried to cough because I didn't want anyone to think that because there, there could be other reasons for coughing. But during the pandemic time, just everything's like, oh no, like everyone has COVID all the time. And we just, so at the first sign of sickness, of course, they couldn't test if the person was dying or not. They would do anything they could to get rid of the person. Bring separation. It didn't even matter if there's own, their own family. Death was a terrifying thing, and they weren't willing to risk their lives for others. But the response of the Christians were noticed by all. Dionysius wrote, Heedless of the danger they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. It's important for us to understand that Christians don't live this way in order to justify themselves. That's what the Pharisee was trying to do. What can I do to be justified? That's not, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. It's from a place of eternal safety and joy 
that our lives will be lived differently. Now this parable speaks directly to another topic of social justice. I know that depending on what you read or which groups you're in, that's a hot topic, but, but it can't be missed. This is mercy ministry. This is helping the poor and the sick. This is feeding the hungry. Now, social justice isn't the work of the gospel. When someone's doing these things and says, this is the gospel, no. Because what is the gospel? The gospel was accomplished by Jesus. Right? The gospel is the good news, the message of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so anything that we do now isn't the gospel in and of itself. But the living in a way that believes the gospel is true. And so it's important to live out the implications of the gospel. When we hear Jesus say, go and do the same, that, that, that's not a place of burden for us. Because we are coming from a place of security and rest, of true justification. He's saying that if you believe in me, your life will begin to look like my life. If you are truly saved, then you will bear fruit in your lives. As we considered more deeply going through the letter to the Galatians. Now, quickly let's consider our third question. Why was the bad guy the hero? Why was the bad guy the hero? Maybe this crossed your mind if you read it this week or even this morning in my reading. If, if Jesus' only point was to show that we should be a neighbor to everyone, I think the clearer way to do it is to make the Samaritan the one on the side of the road and the Pharisee the hero. Right? The Pharisee is the one who helped. I, th I think the lesson would be very clear. Be a good neighbor to everyone, even your enemy. But... The hero of the story of the Samaritan. Why? Well, it highlights the second half of the commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's forcing the Pharisee to think about how he would want to be neighbored. If you are beaten and half dead, would you want your enemy to just pass along you because you guys are physical and natural enemies? Or would you want your enemy to show mercy on you and your life? Right? And so it's a thought-provoking scene that digs deep at the heart and the root of the Pharisees' self-righteousness. But it also speaks, as I mentioned in the beginning, to an underlying theme of Jesus' ministry. And it's a response to the Pharisee who wanted to justify himself. Right? Jesus here is addressing justification. He's addressing that main question about eternal life. Remember, that was the first question. All this parable and neighbor, neighboring stuff came underneath the initial question of how do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus here is addressing that main question about eternal life. He's addressing who can be made right before God and how they're made right. Listen here. If the command is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, if that command is connected to salvation, if we understand rightly that they are an outflow of salvation, therefore, being a good neighbor is an outflow and it's an implication of someone who's justified and has eternal life, then Jesus is saying even those people who we think are bad can be made right with God, can be justified, and can inherit eternal life. 
How? Because God is the one who justifies. We have this false thought that we're able to make ourselves right before God, but it's not possible. We have the same heart as the Pharisee. We want to know what is the minimum we have to do to be justified and to gain life. But let me ask, does love work this way? Is this the way of any relationship? Imagine the scenario of a husband asking his wife, Sweetheart, what's the minimum that you need from me so that we can stay married? A few dates a year? Would you like me to cook dinner once a month? What's the, what is the least that you will believe that I love you? I mean, what, it doesn't work that way. Right? Is, is that a true marriage? Is, is that true love? No, of course. If you had a hesitation in that question and you're married or you're thinking of getting married... Let's speak after the service. I'll, I'll, I'll share a few marriage tips. Not many, but at least we can cover that one. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that eternal life isn't dependent on our petty and selfish selves. What incredible news that God will save anyone who calls upon his name. It doesn't matter what religious background you came from. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, a rich or poor from this neighborhood or that neighborhood? It doesn't matter what your family name is or your race or ethnicity. Those things won't hinder you from coming to Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past because we've all done plenty that we're ashamed of. As we heard from Romans, as Rochelle read before the sermon, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you call on Jesus and believe that Jesus has done everything you need to be made right with God, the, the scriptures declare that you are saved, that you are made right in the eyes of God, that you are justified and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And it's from that point, brothers and sisters, that we really begin to live. It's when we're freed from the burdens of this world that we can actually become good neighbors that we can truly be good friends, good students and good employees, good parents, good spouses. Once we have experienced the sacrificial love of God, it reorders everything in our world. And it frees us. Just like last week we considered how Jesus wanted to free his followers from the chains and the grip of greed. Here we are freed from this idea that we can save ourselves. Once we see that we are justified and made right in Christ and through Christ, because of Christ, and for Christ, it frees us from centering our lives around ourselves, and it puts God and others in the center. Can you imagine your life that way? Can you imagine the peace that you would experience and the joy that you'd be able to share? Can, can you imagine with me our church being that way? Can you think about what kind of church we can be in this neighborhood when we begin to see everyone as our neighbor, everyone created in the image of God, everyone who is able to call on his name? How wonderful would that be? Would we pray towards that end? And let's pray now. Lord God, we thank you.
We thank you that you sent your son to die in our place. We thank you that you had compassion on us, your enemy. And just like the example in the story of the Samaritan and the Pharisee, Father, we don't really understand how we have offended you. And yet we recognize that we are undeserving of the life that you have given through Jesus. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for making a way. And Lord, I pray as I pray every week, Lord, would you open the eyes of those who don't know Jesus as the Savior of the world? Would you make yourself known? And as we consider the end, Father, would we be a church that is known for our love for one another and our love for our neighbors, our love for the city, and through that, that you would be glorified. What a joy and honor that would be. Help us to work towards that end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.